Good morning, everybody. Welcome to worship. I might uh, add you look fantastic and uh, awake, so we're ready to go. We have a theme uh, for this uh, time of life that we're in. Uh, You might know it as COVID-19, but our theme uh, for all this that we're going through is this, make your home a sanctuary. Uh, Make your home a sanctuary. And the idea behind that theme, that's not the sermon theme, the sermon series theme, but that's our theme for this season. Uh, And the reason is that a sanctuary is a place of refuge. A sanctuary is a place of safety. Uh, It's a place of sanctity. Uh, It's a place of refreshment, renewal. And of course, in our case today, it's a place of worship. So your home is an authentic, genuine sanctuary because you're you're focusing on the Lord right now, and that's what we want to do together. It's unconventional. It's maybe not (laughs) the most ideal way. But the beauty of it is, thank uh, God for technology, uh, we have access to Him and uh, one another. Uh, we have content and context for worshiping Him. And you know, this isn't the first time technology has supported God's mission in the world. Uh, the printing press was a big technological breakthrough. Do you know that Roman roads were the reason that the church was able to move so quickly? Do you know that there have been so many interesting breakthroughs technologically uh, that God's people have pivoted and embraced uh, so that we can continue telling the story and that we continue uh, giving opportunity to other people uh, to connect with that story that God wants to use to write a better story in each of our lives. So uh, welcome to worship today. And so today we're actually reflecting on what's your part in the mission of God. That's our theme for this sermon series and the question I'm asking today. Uh, what's your part in the mission of God? We're going to uh, uh, unpack that, explore that, and worship together. And let me begin with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we are in your presence, and we believe that where people are gathered together in your presence, uh, you work mightily, you work powerfully, uh, you call things out of us, uh, you offer things to us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would honor and glorify you as we turn our thoughts to you in your word, as we reflect on uh, your word together. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, Easter, and uh, what a disruptive bombshell uh, of of a moment that was for all the people who knew Jesus. Their entire lives were literally turned upside down. Everything was different. Uh, All bets were off. All plans were delayed. Everything of lesser importance was set aside while they were overwhelmed with the immensity of that event. Initially, it was a horrible, horrible, uh, depressing uh, grief and loss experience for them. But gradually, as they started to see the Lord, literally, in that experience and in those events, something happened in them. And what happened in them was the resurrection of power, the resurrection power, personal resurrection power of Jesus Christ in them. And I I hope and pray that as we work through God's Word in this series, uh, that would be our experience as well. That in the midst of a very difficult time, a challenging time, logistically, emotionally, every way, uh, maybe it's a hard time for you vocationally. Uh, Perhaps this is a time when all these plans you've been making were just about to be right, uh, and all of a sudden they were uh, swept away. Hang in there. Uh, God is going to reveal some things to you in this time uh, that will uh, be very powerful in your life and useful in your life, inspiring in your life, and not just for you, but will be helpful for you. Maybe God's setting up some generational things. There's some things that are happening in this time uh, now that we're experiencing. God will use as we become um, a people who bequeath to a younger generation a way of approaching the world. Uh, our, our culture, is, as wonderful as it is, has been so caught up in a materialist mindset that everything is better with more money, more power, more prestige, more stuff. 
more access to stuff, more enjoyment of stuff. None of that in and of itself is bad, but we have become so enamored and enraptured with that. Uh, uh, people are distracted from the most important things, and that is the thing that God wants to do in them and through them. So we hope that generationally this would be a very powerful pivot point uh, for people who claim Christ as Lord and Savior in this country, and that people who don't know him uh, would perhaps be open to him for the first time because they see people who know Jesus responding in a way that gives them hope uh, and challenges something in them uh, to be honest about their absolute need for what God absolutely alone can provide. So as we dive in, uh, I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 28. This will be a very familiar passage to some of you. We're going to look through a number of passages today to give a proper context and adequate content to this notion of being part of God's mission in the world. But I want to start with Matthew 28 because it captures uh, the, the early momentum of the resurrection of Jesus. And so you see that uh, Matthew tells us that uh, the 11 disciples, this is Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And by the way, I would suggest you have uh, your phone handy or a pad and, and pencil handy, old school technology, to jot down the verses that we're going to touch on this morning so you can go back and look at them in more depth later. So this is Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, this is northern Israel, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, we read this. If you're familiar with this, you say, yes, that's fantastic. That's stirring. That's inspiring. I don't do much about it, but wow, what a great thing he told them. Uh, it was a bombshell to them. I mean, just look at the context. Uh, he took them to a mountain, a place that they were familiar with, a beautiful place. I took them outdoors, away from everything, no distractions. If you've ever been on a retreat, you've had that sort of experience. Uh, if, you've, if you've enjoyed backpacking or kayaking, sailing, uh, getting away, uh, skiing, hella skiing, whatever you might do, and, and you're overwhelmed with the beauty, the awesomeness of, of, and the vastness of the great outdoors. So he takes them to a place familiar to them, but also a place of refreshment and inspiration. But when they saw him... Uh, of course, they worshipped him. He's, he's resurrected. He, he looks different. He's him, but not the same. And so they were compelled, just because of being in his presence, to worship him. And yet, look at this. Some doubted. Maybe today you're sitting here saying, yeah, I dialed in to worship. Uh, worship includes hearing the word of God proclaimed. It's, it's hearing music, singing music. It's praying. It's being silent. Uh, it's lifting my hands. It's getting on my knees. It's sitting quietly. It's yelling uh, out my praises, whatever it is. They were doing that, but it says some doubted. And so maybe you're doubting here today. Notice that they worshiped, and it was still okay that they doubted. The fact that Matthew calls that out, it's not just a criticism, it's recognition. This is observational. This is human nature. If you remember, there was a time Jesus is, is healing people. Um, Mark records this in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. And a man has a son who has, it seems like he has an epileptic seizure or is he possessed by a demon they don't know the, 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 the disciples are trying to pray and help and, and nothing is happening and so the man reaches out to Jesus and he says if you can do anything and Jesus said what do you mean if I can do anything 
All things are possible if you believe. That wasn't just a generic, hey, believe and stuff happens. It's, I'm here. Believe in me. I can, I can do something. And the man said this, I believe, but help my unbelief. Isn't that a great prayer? That's one of the most wonderful uh, things that we can say. Lord, I'm here to worship you. I want to know you. I believe in you. But help my unbelief. It's so hard for me to sort the circumstances of my life out in a way that is making sense. Things I'm trying to do, with this son I love, uh, this family I'm trying to care for. So maybe you're in that place. I, I certainly am. Lord, help my unbelief. And he will. And then Jesus tells them, go and make disciples of all nations. It sounds like you may as well, you know, hey, why don't you go fly? You guys who've grown up fishing, uh, you guys have grown up primarily in a, in a small part of Israel, uh, big in terms of land, but small in terms of culture, Galilee. Uh, you guys have not seen the world. You're monolingual. You probably, they probably speak you know, Aramaic, understand Hebrew, maybe understand some Greek. Uh, but they're not international type guys. And so he says, you know, go make disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden we have to insight that, that God is one. He is one as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's some theology developing here. The theology of the Trinity. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Wow, three years of intense teaching and learning in the presence of Jesus. And they're going to have to do something with that. So he's saying to them, really, hey, you're worshiping and you're going to be studying. And you're going to be uh, engaging other people in a conversation about what you've, ex what you've experienced and what you've seen. And then he says this. This is the most comforting part because the part he just gave them is overwhelming. He doesn't even tell them how. He just says, go do this. In implied in this is be resourceful, be resilient, be innovative. Draw on everything you've seen in me and learn from me. You've been preparing for this, even if you didn't know you've been preparing for this. Don't be paralyzed by fear. Don't become passive in the face of this big, overwhelming opportunity and command I've given you, assignment I'm bequeathing to you. And he gives him this wonderfully comforting uh, word. He says, and surely, you can count on this, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Nothing and no one can separate you from me. I'll be with you. Even if you can't see me, even if it, even if it seems like I'm absent, I am with you. So, wow, I could stop preaching right there, and maybe it would be better if I did, but there's more. I want you to get the rest of this so you can see how your part in this uh, connects to what Jesus told them. Because he told them, and, and Matthew recorded it, not only so we could know what he told them, but what we then receive generationally from them. As they have passed this on, as they've modeled this, as they've demonstrated this, as, they, as they've taught this, as they've proclaimed this to, to generation upon generation, it's come to us. And so as we worship him, wrestling with, gee, Lord, I have doubts. I'm not sure how to get this done. He says, you know what? You're going to teach them what I'm teaching you, and I will be with you. So what do you think they were thinking and feeling? Uh, this is not that long after they had denied him. Run away. Believed he was dead and not coming back. And now he's gathered them, and he's giving them this incredible commission in fact, we call this the Great Commission because it's so uh, amazing and awesome, so big. What do you think they were thinking and feeling? Were they feeling honored? Were they feeling unworthy? Were they feeling confused? Hey, I can't. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm a fisherman. Matthew himself, I collect taxes. This is all new to me. 
What would you be thinking? Uh, what are you thinking right now? Assuming that Jesus showed up in your home, your, your home sanctuary right now, and, and put me on pause and said, listen up to this, because this is for you. This is my command and commission for you. How would you be feeling right now? Oh, Lord, I've got, so, I've got little kids. I've got big kids. I've got a job. I don't have a job. I need a job. Uh, it's a lot of moving parts. It's really not my temperament. Uh, it's not my personality. There's things I think I'd prefer to do. What would you say? What would you think? How would you process this? Where would you go with this? To whom would you turn? Hopefully to him and say, Lord, all right. And the fact that you're with me makes all the difference. Lord, help my unbelief. Uh, do you understand that you have an essential part in God's mission? That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration when I say you have an essential part. The essence of who you are is about being God's partner in his work in the world. The work he's doing in you to reconcile you to him allows you then to be one who helps reconcile others to him. Not that they have to go through you to be reconciled to him, but you get to say to others, having been reconciled to Christ, this is for you. You can do that in word and deed. You can do that over decades. You can do it over minutes. But you have an essential part in God's mission. Certainly part of it is raising your children. Uh, it's loving your spouse. It's being honest and a person of integrity in the marketplace. It's expressing yourself in all the creative ways uh, that you do. So it's not about you being not you. It's about you being fully you. Being his partner in the actual life you're now living with all the constraints. All the problems. All the uncertainties. You can be his partner in his work in the world right now. This is not a delay, gee, when I have more time and I'm older, I can do this. It's right now. What would it look like for me to be your partner, Lord? So don't count yourself out or underestimate your part in God's mission. This isn't about grandiosity. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I've got a part in God's mission in the world. And what do you do? No, it's not grandiosity. It's what we talked about last week. It's about guarding the gospel. Not guarding it like, hey, it's not for you. It's mine. But rather, guarding it. It's a precious thing that God has entrusted to us. Don't drop it and, and forget where you left it. Don't disparage it. I'm kind of embarrassed about it. Don't deny it. Well, since I have doubts, I'm not even going to go there. Don't be discouraged if people say, why are you guarding that and acting like it's so important? It's, it's not that big of a deal. How do we guard it? We live it and we give it. Very simply. Guarding the gospel is living it and giving it. So Paul says to his protege, Timothy, who's, who's now serving the Lord in Ephesus, Paul being in prison at the time, he says, what you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's out of his second letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. And so what is the mission of God? The mission of God is his work redeeming the world he created. He's not barging into our world. He's redeeming his world, the world that he created, that we're in it, and that we have compromised in, in active or passive rebellion against him, indifference toward him, resentment of him. Having tried to push him out and say, look, this is ours, you go with yours. You stay in heaven, we'll stay here on earth. Uh, a, a person I love deeply, when I first met him, said, you know, God and I have a, a, an agreement. Uh, he doesn't bother me, and I don't bother him. And we laugh about that now, uh, because he's this incredible uh, follower of Jesus and, and leader uh, in the name of Jesus. 
He's influenced so many people and continues to influence them. And he just, we laugh about the fact that he had that approach in his relationship with God. You stay where you stay and I'll stay where I stay and everything will be really good. And of course, now he would say, I just didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I was missing out on. Don't miss out on it. The mission of God is his work redeeming the world he created and he will prevail in his mission. And the good news is that his mission includes you and me. It's not about you and me. It's for you and me, and it includes you and me, right? As long as we think that the world is all about us, we'll never really understand us or the world we live in. It's not about us. It's about God in his world, redeeming, reconciling us to him, us to one another, us to his creation, and allowing us to be part of his work in redeeming the world. We all have a different role to play. So in Christ, we are a kingdom of priests serving God. That might be a shocking thought to you might think, well, gee, that sounds really presumptuous to describe anyone but a real priest, a real pastor, as a priest or a pastor. But you are. You are. I have a part in the mission of God. You have a part in the mission of God. Why? Because we are a kingdom of priests serving God. Peter, right? Peter said it this way. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. That's Peter, right? You could say Peter's the first priest. On this rock I will build my church, Jesus says to Peter. Peter the fisherman becoming Peter the priest. The rabbis would have laughed at that. He's a fisherman. How pretentious to call him a priest. And yet, this is what Peter is saying our legacy really is. So in Christ, that's who we are. In fact, John, one of the disciples who was with uh, the other disciples on that mountain, who ended up being the longest lived of all the disciples, he wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote uh, three letters. He also had this incredible experience we call Revelation. It's at the very end of the New Testament. And in that Revelation, he has this vision. And it as you know, if you've read Revelation, it's so hard to understand because it's so symbolic, but it's so real. It's describing things that are indescribable. That's why the language is so over the top. And in Revelation chapter 5, he's having this, he's present. It's, it's as if he's present in heaven and he's watching uh, the angels worship the Lord. And he looks like a lamb who's been slain. And there's this scroll that is representative of all things that are to come. And no one can open it. And they're in tears that they can't open it. But the lamb who was slain is able to open this scroll. And, and all of heaven bursts into worship and adoration, uh, praise of him. And, and John says it this, this way. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood... You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, the whole world is his, and so he wants the whole world to come to him. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then John says it this way, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels. And if you've heard that song, uh, was it the Revelation song? This is, this is where the, the language comes from for that song. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea 
and that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's the authority that Jesus invokes on that mountain with his disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and teach everything I've taught you, making disciples. And I will be with you always. So now John, as an old man, having this revelation, it's like, oh my God, thank you for letting me be part of this and for giving me the, the privilege of seeing this. And I can pass it on to others to have a glimpse of the largeness, the vastness, the proper context of this calling to be priests and partners with God in his mission in the world. This is no small thing. Do not demean it as a small thing. Do not deny it as a small thing. Do not disparage it, disdain it, and dismiss it as a small thing. Do not miss the biggest thing in your life. The COVID virus, all that you're going through is a small thing in your life because this is the big thing in your life. And let the big thing in this infuse and define and guide you through the thing that feels very big to you right now. So I want to give you a few thoughts to think about in, in regard to this. First is this. Through his Holy Spirit, God is calling all people together in his name. They might be resisting, they might be denying, it doesn't matter. Through his Holy Spirit, God has, has launched a movement of his spirit in the world to call people from every corner of the earth to him, and it's happening. You will not read about it in the, in the, in the conventional media, but it's happening. And if you pay attention, you'll be blown away by what is happening in the world as people are coming to know Christ and walk with him. What happens when that happens? We become his beloved children, his friends, his household, his temple. Uh, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, where Timothy was the pastor, says it this way, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You are being fashioned by him as a holy temple in the Lord. And you are priests in that temple. He's fashioning out of his people, fully integrated. And so, and in him, he says, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. That's why your home can be called a sanctuary. So God in Christ came into his world to redeem and reconcile all creation. He fulfills his promises given through the prophets. You see this in Israel's history, documented in what we call the Old Testament or the First Testament. He keeps his promise to establish his kingdom and bless the nations. And we, we now know that history goes somewhere. There will be a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth, a new people of which we get to be a part. And therefore, we all have a part in it and the spiritual gifting to fulfill it. Again, um, Paul writes to the Ephesians, and this really is the, if you're going to talk about what is the cornerstone theology of La Jolla Community Church, it's what I'm about to read. But to each one of us, this is Ephesians chapter 4, and the previous uh, passage was Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Now we're in Ephesians 4, uh, 7 to 16. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Other places we learn about all the spiritual gifting that the people of God are given. Every single person is given spiritual gifts in addition to any talents or experiences that you already have in life. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature 
attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is what's so much fun about watching our kids grow up. A little kid, and you wonder, what will they be? What will they do? What will they be like? As you're changing their diaper, as you're chasing them around the park, you're wondering, what? where's this going to go? And then when we see these children grow up, it's so, it's so fun to see, wow, this is how they, they attained to the fullness of their potential, their maturity. A friend of mine was going through a very hard time. His wife was dying of cancer, and uh, she needed a special kind of treatment. And the doctors, he's a physician, and, and the physicians were telling him, uh, she needs this, and there's one person who in particular is the expert in San Diego on this. She needs to see this person. And, and my friend said, who is that? And when they said this person's name, he, he just smiled. Because he was thinking that was the kid who lived across the street from us. That kid who lived across the street from us is the one who's possibly going to save my wife's life. Don't you love that? That's what he's talking about here. We're going somewhere in Christ. And what's the effect of this, Paul says? Then we will no longer be little babies, infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each person, each part does its work. You have a part in God's mission in the world. We're all depending on you. We need you. You're essential. We can't do it without you. So our work is rooted in Jesus and sustained in worship and study, even if we have doubts. Second point is this. Jesus restores and renews our spirit through personal worship and study. That's why having a daily quiet time, a time uh, quietly with God, a time alone with God, reading scripture, praying, reflecting on your life, offering up your concerns to him and your concerns for others in prayer. This is why that aspect of worship and study, a personal aspect of it, a personal application of it is so essential. Whether it's five minutes or, or 50 minutes, depending on your age and stage in life, you'll have probably five minutes uh, at some point, and you have uh, two hours. There's no excuse not to do this. It could be watching a sermon, a, a presentation, listening to a podcast from some great uh, biblical teacher or preacher. It's reading the Word. It's listening to the Word on Audible, on audible while you're taking a walk. See, worship is the context for study. If you love Jesus, you want to know more about Him. So it's a worshipful attitude that makes us say, I want to know. I want to know more. Because I worshiped him on that mountain, I want to study and remember what he told me so I can tell others, right? And study is the content of our worship. We don't just come in and worship and say, oh, if there's a God out there, I hope he likes me. We worship because he's told us who he is and who we are. And so we have an informed worship through our study of his word. So we worship from the heart, from the center of who we are in Christ. And study is developing a sanctified mind, a mind that is fully dedicated to him. The greatest astronomer of all time, uh, Johannes Kepler, he was an amazing guy. I mean, not just in his own day, uh, in terms of how he told us about the motion of the planets. But to this day, he's still an amazingly impressive person. And when somebody said, why, Johannes, do you do what you do? You're the world's greatest scientist, and you're also a theologian. Why do you do this? 
He says, because I want to think God's thoughts after him. I want to reflect on everything he's done in creation and that he's doing in people in his name. This is our opportunity to live like that, to talk like that. You know, this is what I do for my day job, and I love it. And in the context of that, I'm always thinking, Lord, how do I think your thoughts after you? How do I serve people as you would serve people? How do I care for people as you would care for people? How do I treat people? How do I do deals? How do I fulfill promises as you would? So I love the way Paul says it to the Romans. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We get to test out everything we're studying and experiencing in worship in the real world. Is this true? How is it true? What does it look like to apply it and live it out in all these various contexts? So the third point is this. You have a spiritual sweet spot when it comes to worship and study. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Think about your experience just going to school. Every kid in the class was different. They had different interests, different aptitudes. Some kids were good at one thing, some at another. All of you had to go through the same curriculum. There's some minimum curriculum everybody has to get through. But at some point, uh, a wise teacher figures out that kid likes to do that, and they're going to learn best through that mode, through these uh, media, uh, for these applications. Somebody likes to work with their hands. Somebody likes to imagine things. Somebody likes to um, just listen to things and then try things. Some people just want to be on their own and, and come up with things. You have a spiritual sweet spot when it comes to worship and study. Do you know what yours is? God created a variety of capacities to experience him. I'm going to just read nine of them without a lot of explanation. And I'm going to refer you to a book, uh, Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Pathways, which he does a beautiful job uh, elucidating these, describing these at a deeper level. But I just want to give you a heads up on these. And perhaps you've heard me say, refer to these over the years. Nine things uh, that are ways that you uh, are more naturally uh, likely to love God and 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 process what you're learning uh, from God, from his word, among his people. The first one is this, uh, being a naturalist. This is not a, being a person who walks around without clothing. This is a person who goes out into nature, into creation. Uh, it's about loving God outdoors. Creation speaks to you. Uh, for me, being out on a boat on the water, being up in the mountains, being uh, at a fly fishing stream, uh, it, it's, it's like I'm in communion with God. It doesn't discount his word or other things that, that, that allow me to know him, but it's one of those ways I really connect with him. So it's a naturalist approach. And the other one is a sensate approach, number two, loving God with the senses. Creativity speaks to you. You paint things. You draw things. Uh, I, I once was sitting in a seminar uh, listening to a, a great theologian talk, and they were talking about all this esoteric, really practical, but very, uh, very uh, sophisticated theology and I noticed the guy sitting in front of me had a pad out and a pen, and he's just doodling. I'm thinking, wow, I must be really bored. And I look over, my gosh, it was like the, the, ce the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The guy was drawing all these things that were illustrating everything this guy was saying. And I remembered it, because I knew the guy. I said, oh my gosh, that guy is a, a Disney Imagineer. This guy approaches everything like that. He, he's dyslexic, he can't read very well, he didn't process words, that kind of thing very well. Man, that guy speaks volumes in colored pencils. He's a sensate. Traditionalists, loving God through ritual and symbol. So if you grew up in a Catholic church or a Greek Orthodox church and you say, I just miss those, those rituals, those smells and bells, 
As a little kid, I remember being in a Catholic church, and the mystery of it was scary, but also sort of interesting. I love being in places like Mount Athos in the Greek Orthodox settings. I love being in a place like St. Peter's. It does speak to me. I'm not limited by it, but I touch on that. All these nine things, you're going to find parts of you that, uh, uh, that relate to them. Others more than others, right? Aesthetics, ascetics, not aesthetics, but ascetics. People who want to live a more simple, stripped-down life. Love God in solitude and in simplicity. Activists love God through confronting injustice and big issues. You're a Christian environmentalist. You're a Christian you know, human trafficking advocate. You, 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 that's how you roll, and you feel more alive in your faith when you do that. Caregivers are people who love God by loving others. Enthusiasts, those are people who love God with mystery and expressive celebration. When you see people holding their hands up in the air and you're thinking, do they have a question or what's going on there? They're praising God with a, with a, a very, very traditional posture. But they're celebrating in a very, very public way. It's not to show off or draw attention to themselves. They cannot help themselves. They're dancing. They're swaying. It's fantastic. Contemplatives are people who love God through concentrated adoration. They might be saying the Jesus prayer, Jesus Christos Asame, Jesus Christos Asame. They may be looking at an icon, not to, not to worship art, but the icon is speaking to them in ways that represent Scripture. They might be doing uh, Lectio Divina. They'll read a passage. It just means holy reading. They'll read a passage, and they'll say, out of that passage, what word spoke to me? What sentence really grabbed me? And they'll just read that over and over and focus on that. You see the beauty of this, of all these ways? And then the ninth way is, is, is an intellectual way. Loving God with a mind and knowledge speaks to you. These are the people who love every little detail. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation, Q&A this last week, a Zoom conversation. And somebody asked me a question I've never been asked before. Uh, and I won't even go into the question because I'd have to explain it. But it was a delightful question. And I thought, wow, that's neat. Uh, I had never really thought about that. So we processed that. It was really fun. What were the details? And what do they mean? And do they matter that much? So none of these is complete. All can be vital. All can be corrupted. If you just say, uh, this is the only way to worship God, you know, this traditional way, if you don't do this, you haven't really worshiped God. Uh, you miss it big time. Because all nine of these are powerful and all might evoke something in you at different times in your life. So what's your part in the mission of God? It's being you alive in Christ. Understanding yourself enough to know that these are ways I really resonate with the Lord. It's personal worship and study that aligns with your spiritual temperament. So if you saw the guy I was referring to previously, and he, he said, I just had two wonderful hours with the Lord. And he said, wow, what, what, what scripture were you in? Well, I thought of one word, and I then doodled for two hours. And you thought, oh, that wasn't a call time. That wasn't really a worship time. Oh, well, really? And if he showed you what he did, you'd say, whoa, wow. It's personal worship and study that aligns with your spiritual temperament. Now, let me say this. No church can really feed you if you're not taking responsibility for you. It's, it's really immature and irresponsible to say, I'm not being fed. We've all said it. We've all heard it said. When you say, I'm not being fed, you're saying, I'm, I'm ascribing to you and assigning to you responsibility for feeding me. This sound, it sounds silly to say it that way, doesn't it? If we're dialed into our temperament and we're worshiping the Lord and studying throughout the week in ways appropriate to our temperament, we come into a public worship setting 
ready to receive what God wants to give us and not complaining that we're not getting it exactly how we usually like to get it. Because in a worship service, everybody has a preferred worship style. In every worship setting, right now, in the comfort of your home, in your home sanctuary, across this city and, and around the world, people are listening in today, you represent one of these nine things as your primary way of experiencing and expressing your faith. But we're limiting it today to a sermon and a song and some prayer. Well, is that really limiting it? If, that's, if you came having done nothing to prepare for worship and this is all you get, you're going to feel like, oh, I wasn't fed. There was not enough contemplation. I didn't get to raise my hands. I, <clears throat> I didn't get to do it on a mountaintop, you know. But if you're doing those things and then you gather with people to worship, no matter what the setting is for that worship, you're going to say, you know what, that was good to be with God and his people. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake gathering together as his people. Don't try to find a place where everybody has the same spiritual temperament. It's deadly dull after a while. But being in the body of Christ as a priest and a partner in God's work in the world, finding your part in it, allows you to express the wonder of who you are in him. And so... Restore and renew your spirit through personal worship and study that reflects the way you experience and express the Lord most powerfully. When all the styles and temperaments that the Lord has given us access to are present in the church, the church is wildly and wonderfully alive. We're counting on you to understand you well enough to contribute to our experience of being this living temple and priests together in the kingdom of God. And so I encourage you to read Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Pathways. <clears throat> I encourage you to practice personal worship and study aligned with your style. There's some discipline in this. Practice means discipline, doing. Don't judge anyone else's style or compare yourself with them. Well, if you're more spiritually mature, you do this. Don't do that. Don't deny people uh, what is essential to who they are in Christ. But maybe encourage them to see that that's a valid way for them to explore their relationship in Christ. Encourage everyone you know to embrace their style and bless others. So Lord Jesus, I pray this for me. I pray this for my brothers and sisters, <clears throat> for moms and dads as they nurture children to know you and love you. As we lead teams of people called together to minister in your name. As we see people struggling, Lord, let's uh, give us the, the wisdom and discernment to be able to uh, help them see what you've taught, understand your authority, that you're with them at all times, and what you've put in their hearts and minds counts. So, Lord, we pray that in these difficult times, we could have such a large perspective on you that it would change the way we embrace these times, that our home would be a sanctuary not in which we hide, but launches us into the world in your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this Wednesday, uh, we've been doing some really fun Zooms the last few weeks. Uh, I want to invite the men of the church to a Zoom on Wednesday at 4.30. So Wednesday at 4.30, I'm going to have a Zoom call for half an hour uh, with as many men in this church who can take a half hour and dial in. Uh, we will give you the information this week. You'll see it uh, in the uh, uh, weekly email that comes out earlier on Wednesday. Just paste it in uh, to, your, to your computer, your phone. Uh, tap on it if you're uh, doing this at the last minute. And we'll have a half hour. It can go longer, but, but you're just come in for a half hour. And, and just touch base with the other men in the church. You might be in a life group, great, but this is in addition to that. We just want to uh, have a, a little time with the men of the church to reflect on where we are and what we're doing together.
So enjoy the rest of the worship service. sin runs deep, your grace is more, where grace is found, is where you are, and where you are, Lord, I am free, holiness is Christ in and where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Oh, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. So teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I 
my one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Thank you for your part in God's mission in the world. Remember, you have a part in God's mission in the world. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine lift up his countenance upon you, giving you everything you need, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.